everyone, I'm Nina, and I'll be doing the scripture reading for today. And today's reading is from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. And it's also going to be kind of a long one today. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, you know that I have sent to you, name in my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger, messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, If not, please let me, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there. Leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. So as you saw, as that ended there, right in the middle of that sentence, that there's more to the story, I'd encourage you to read the rest of that chapter to get the rest of the story, but we're going to be focusing on the part of the story that was read today, and this is the last of the series of messages uh, on, called Bless 
uh, the rhythms of disciple-making, learning to share Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And so this being the last one, um, we should remember the, the rhythms of life that bless is... Uh, it would help if I turn this on. Yeah, there we go. The bless stands for is to begin with these rhythms of life. These are only five of the rhythms of life. There's a lot of rhythms in life, but let me begin with prayer. Listen, uh, eat, and then serve. And today we're going to be looking at this last one, story, which fills our life full. Every day we have this rhythm of story that we experience in many ways. Um, common question. How was your week? And often we'll hear a short story of how their week was, or we will provide a story of how our week was. And there we go. There's a rhythm right there, a story being told as part of a rhythm of life. And stories fill our lives. We love stories. We love a good story, right? That's why movies are so popular in our culture, because if it's a good story, people flock to it. It's everybody loves stories a good story, and everybody lives in light of a much bigger story that we all are a part of, and a person's dominant story will significantly, the way we understand what story we're a part of, will significantly shape our beliefs and our behaviors and the way we do everything in life. So, for example, like, if we believe in that we are part of God's story, that he started the story, and he's got the end of the story, well, actually, the, the ongoing story, the eternal story, then we will live a certain way. But if we believe that there is no God, that this stuff where we are just came out about random chance, and then, then we will live according to that story. So you see, we're part of a bigger story, just what dominant story do we live by? And so therefore, the rhythm of story is so important as a rhythm of disciple-making of Jesus Christ. And the story of Naaman, which was just read, being cleansed of leprosy, is a great example of how important story as a rhythm of disciple-making is to introducing God to other people and his story. And so we're going to be focusing on this for much of the message. The story begins and it happens during this time when Joram was the king of Israel and the prophet Elisha had taken over for the prophet Elijah. Now some of this you just might not be familiar with, but I'm giving you some background. It was during this time after King Solomon was king of Israel united and then Israel divided after him to two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel still, and then the southern kingdom called Judah, as you can see here on the map, the green and the purple. And then Joram, being the king of the northern kingdom Israel, did not worship the Lord God Almighty. Well, he might have given him like name only, but he worshiped a lot of other gods as well. And the kings of Israel before him had done so too. And so we see signs of this this um, heresy being done in Israel, this following other gods in our story. And so the story starts off by introducing Naaman, who is this commander of the Syrian army. So he's, it's uh, to the, like the northeast part of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he was a great man in the sight of his king, the king of Syria, and highly regarded. Why? Well, because he got victories, right? He was victorious. And some of those battles even were against the northern kingdom, Israel. 
So he was very well respected in his country and by his king. And the story tells us that it was through Naaman that the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, had given victory, which is interesting. So the story tells us that the Lord would give victory against his own people, Israel, by this commander, Naaman. And this is because we know from the scriptures, God has used this pattern over and over. If you look in the book of Judges, that when his people stray away, worship other gods, he uses other nations to come in and discipline them and punish them in that sense and hopefully cause them to call back and say, save us, we need your help, because they were not looking to the Lord at all before that. And so God was using this unbeliever, Naaman, to discipline his children, Israel, this northern kingdom. And what's interesting is that this great warrior, Naaman, had leprosy. And now in in Israel, if you had leprosy, you were considered an outcast, unclean, which just meant that you were You had to be shunned and live outside of normal society in another community of just lepers (laughs) because they they were unclean according to God's law. And so leprosy today um, is just this medical condition and known as Hansen's disease, and it still exists. There's millions of people all over the globe that still struggle with leprosy. It's a nasty disease, but... It first starts with this like small patch of skin on, whoops, wow, that was three in a row, okay, there we go. Patch of skin that just starts to feel nothing. You know, it's like wherever the, you can see those patches, he can't feel everything, anything, I mean. And all those with leprosy and, um, would be, they would see this, they would go to the priest, as we see from the Old Testament, they would determine that it's unclean and then they would have to live outside of the society. But today it's curable with multi-drug therapy, and so it, it can be corrected if they get and seek help early enough. But in the time of Naaman, there was no cure. It would ultimately be fatal. And it might take a long time, but it would eventually be fatal because leprosy can cause disability if you're, it's untreated, and you can lose parts of your body. It can cause blindness if untreated. Um, attacks the nerves in your skin so you can't feel, so you start getting injuries and you don't know it, and then they get infected, and then the, it gets gangrene and you've got to amputate. Um, so it could result in paralysis and in the, any part of your body. The feet, the hands are most common, and then also in the face here. So Naaman knew as a commander, he was very strategic in his battles, but he knew that his battle with leprosy was going to be the end of him. There's no cure. Eventually, it would win the battle, or it would have victory over him. You know, he's thinking like a general. And so he would lose this battle to leprosy. Now, during their previous battles with Israel, it says they did some raids in Israel, and the forces had captured people from Israel and put them into slavery. And so one of these was this young girl whom Naaman had given to his wife as a servant. And she told her mistress and told, who told then Naaman about that this prophet of God, the God of Israel, who could cure leprosy. Now imagine how this would stick in Naaman's mind. He knew he had lost this battle. But now there's hope. 
that he might actually have victory over this battle through this guy in Israel, living in Samaria. And so this was the prophet Elisha, as I mentioned earlier. So this Israelite slave girl was simply sharing the story of God that she knew, that she had believed in the true God, the one and true God that Israel believed in, right, and that he could cure leprosy. And this prophet of God could be the instrument of that. And what's amazing is she shared this to her, slate, her masters, and it was for their good, to help him out. You know, honestly, if, if it was me, I might feel like, yeah, I hope he dies. You know, <laughs> maybe I'd be free then, or at least given to a nicer master or something. But here in the story, we begin to see how the Lord God used his story to draw Naaman to himself, to believe in the true God, the true and better story of God, as we say, for life. This young slave girl shared this story out of her faith, that she had that God was all-powerful, creator of the universe, so definitely he could cure leprosy if he chose to do so. She, she trusted that he had this power, and she had this care for her master. This is the curious thing. Why did she have a care for her slave master? Naaman was a powerful commander of the army, and this was just a young slave girl that he had captured, his forces had captured. She was plunder from one of Naaman's raids into Israel. And yet this young girl spoke up. Why? It's because of her faith in the Lord God, because of her character that she understood. She was part of a larger story that maybe she didn't quite understand. But she, even though she was a slave, she knew she was still part of God's sovereign plan, meaning his overall story. And so she was going to continue to play the part she had been given that she was allowed to live. But this is really interesting part of, to this, is that Naaman and his wife listened to this slave girl. Why would they listen to a slave girl? Why would this powerful general, who the king, the most powerful man in the land, respected and gave his military command over, listen to this slave girl, this little slave girl, I mean, you would think that he might, if he heard it, he might just pat her in the head and say, yeah, 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 whatever her name is, you know, or just slave girl, you know, they don't treat him well, and, and just say, yeah, yeah, you, you don't know what the real world's like, you know, this is just your pipe dream. Or just say, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm sure that's what the prophet can do, and just ignore her, not even take it seriously. But why would his wife take it seriously enough to tell Naaman, and then he take it seriously enough, to listen to this slave girl. Interesting. Well, something about this girl made her believable. She wasn't just a slave girl. She had to have been special among the other slaves for her to say this and to be believed. This young girl whose name we don't even know because the writer of this story didn't think that was important enough, but important enough to bring out her as part of the overall story of that's recorded in the Old Testament. And so what's amazing here, she tried to help the very man who commanded the army to raid her home and kill and attack her village and even who knows what happened to her family. They might have been killed or enslaved as well. And here she is trying to benefit the person who did this. This is godly character and faith in the sovereignty of God. She may not have, she didn't like what happened to her. Imagine the tra trauma of this for this little girl, 
And yet, she had the faith to say that while I don't understand and I don't like this tragedy that's happened, it wouldn't have happened unless it was according to the story of God. That he allowed these things to happen and he's still working his purposes on earth through this terrible thing that has happened. And so she treated her situation as part of this unraveling story of God. And that is why she lived with hope in the God who can heal leprosy and even touch the heart of her master, Naaman. And so this hope she had was attractive to Naaman and his wife. And that curiosity is why I would project, and other scholars say, that possibly they were listening to her, even considering it. Besides the fact that, hey, practically, why not try it, right? If, if it can heal me of leprosy, <laughs> why not try it? You know, if he's even selfishly thinking that. But think about it. He would then have to go to his king, which he did. He was motivated to go to his king in Syria, get permission to go see the king of Israel, who he had already done raids against. <laughs> so this is kind of sticky and tricky, and he does this motivated because of what this slave girl said. And so he goes and visits the prophet of the Lord God, Elisa. And so the truth here we observe is that the story of God is the true and better story of life. Do we really believe that? That the story of God is the true and better story of life and that we are part of this story. See, when we share the story of God, the true and better story of life with others or even live by it, then it gives hope and it restores life to us no matter what is happening. And we see this in Naaman's life when he trusted the word of God given to him by this prophet, Elisha. And when Naaman calmed down after his first initial reaction, you know, he was upset, he was kind of prideful, you know, the Jordan River is not as good as our rivers in Syria, whatever, but then he, he gets over that and he trusts the story that God is creator and has the power to cleanse and he washes himself in the Jordan River seven times and he's healed. And we hear his words of faith in verse 15, which he says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. I mean, right there, he's basically saying the gods of his own people are not anything now. It's just the God in Israel who is the true God. Now, he had become a disciple, a follower of God at this point, but he didn't understand everything because he, he still associated the God of Israel with the land of Israel because you notice what he says in verse 17. He says, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering on a, or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. You see, it was a common belief in that time period that the god of a certain people were, was connected to the land of that people. So that's why he said, let me take the earth with me because I don't want to worship the Lord God of Israel on Syrian soil. So he makes a little mound of earth and then he uses it there. So he, he doesn't have the correct understanding yet of fully who God is but Elisa doesn't correct him at this point. He just says, go in peace. Because he knows that it takes time and process of learning who God is fully. And he would learn if he was motivated and he would read the scriptures of the Torah, the Old Testament. See, people believe in many stories of life. And these stories often misguide us and even lie to us 
about what is true in this reality of life. For example, I remember when I started seminary in 1990, there was a movie that was released that same year. I don't know if some of you saw this movie. It was very popular, a big hit at that time, 1990, called Ghost. Right? And you know, it's got Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze, Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, they look so young because that was a long time ago. But you know, it was a really, it's, it's a wonderful, interesting story. And it's about life and death and ghosts. You know, that's why it's called Ghost. And it's, you know, in my first few years of seminary, I worked in this uh, church in the youth ministry there, um, volunteering, and then also then came on staff with the youth. And I, and I remember hearing after a couple of years, like 92 or so, uh, youth, some youth were talking about how ghosts were bothering them or something like that. And, they, and I talked to them, and I said, where did you get this concept? And they said, oh, we got it from the movie Ghost. And I was like... Because they thought that, you know, after you die, you'd hang around as a ghost and you'd have some kind of, some limited way of interacting with the living. And, you know, it's kind of creepy thinking that way, right? <laughs> People hang around after they're dead and kind of bother you. <laughs> that is creepy. But um, then I shared the true and better story of God that only the Spirit of Christ there is, the Spirit of God, and if we believe, it dwells within us. But then there's the evil spirits as well that are God's enemies, and they also exist, but there's no dead people's ghosts going, you know, or poking us or, you know, you know, making us wake up at night or whatever. That's not them. That's not our loved ones, you know, just like upset at us for something we didn't do or whatever. No, that could be evil spirit or it could be just something in our mind. We're watching too many movies maybe, you know, and our imagination's working. Yeah, so at this point, I shared that with them and you know, it was a different story for them to either accept or reject. See, gently and with respect, we get to share God's story, which is true and better, of life with people. Every opportunity we get. Are we doing that? Can we do that? Are we familiar enough with God's story of creation and fall and then redemption and then new creation. And that's a very summary, a short summary of the God story. And the only way for us to be familiar with this story is that we are familiar with God's word, where that is where the story is recorded. And so how familiar are we? And, and when we learn these stories of the scriptures, then we, can, we get to tell them to one another here in the body of Christ and practice and be familiar with them in the context of our lives and what's going on. And then we become even more adept at just sharing the story of God naturally. I'm not talking about forcing it into a conversation. But just like, for example, yesterday I was talking to my neighbor, and she was telling me, you know, whatever's going on in her life. And she has a son. Uh, she's divorced. And then she, she mentioned, uh, she said a swear word to me because she was talking about something, you know, she was frustrated about. And then she says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, because she knows I'm a pastor. You know, we get that all the time. Somebody swears, and then they say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I shouldn't say that to you. And I'm like, you know, I'm not the one you should worry about. <laughs> and uh, and then, then she talked about how she's careful with her son about these words and all this stuff. And then in my mind, it just popped up. And I said, oh, you know, this reminds me, you know, Jesus talked about the words that come out of our mouth and how it is just reflection of the ugliness in our heart. And, and I said, I feel really sorry about people when I work with or and, uh, that just have this 
you know, they drop F-bombs and do all this stuff all the time. And it's just like their hearts just are being revealed that they're in turmoil. There's all this unsettled ugliness in there that's just coming out, and I just feel like they're captivated by, I feel sorry that they're so upset in their life that way. And I just left it at that. So, you know, just part of God's, small part of God's story, just Jesus, one little statement he made, just part of God's story. You just share it. But how familiar are we? How often do these stories of the Bible naturally flow between us as brothers and sisters? Story becomes a rhythm of disciple-making when we believe the story of God is true and a better way of life. And when you and I believe this, then we also will believe that our story, our life story is a part of God's story. Now, how do we know about this Israelite girl? Well, because when whoever recorded this story in 2 Kings chapter 5 understood that her story was a part of God's story. And that's why it's there. It's recorded for us. And a part of the story of God revealing his glory to the world, which is God's story. It's all about revealing his story and glory to the world. You know, somebody had pith, pith, said in a pithy way that history, you split it up, add an S, and it's really his story, right? It's, that, it's, it's just God's story, how he's working things out. And even this slave girl saw her life as part of God's overall ongoing story because she was kidnapped. She was forced into slavery. Who knows what happened to her family and village in the process and, and all these terrible things happened to her. And yet she had this concept that God was still in control and she was according to part of the story that she was going to be faithful to him. And she was going to try to tell this story naturally to her slave masters. You know, this is so important for us to understand because think of how God has displayed his story through horrible things in history, right? Think of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He was betrayed by his family, his brothers, deep trauma as a young teenager, and then sold into slavery and then for years, decades, he was a slave, and then he was in prison as a slave. He faced much suffering. And yet, he, he knew it was a part of God's story. He didn't understand why. He was faithful to the Lord God, and God blessed him in the things that he was doing as a slave. And then God blessed him as the second in command of Egypt, if you look at that. And, and then it worked out for his family, and God was working his plan through the suffering that was happening. But we just didn't know until the end of the story, right, of what God's purposes were. Think of Jesus. He went through a lot of pain and suffering and hardship and torture, but he faced it because of the joy of knowing the full story that was placed before him. He knew God's purpose. And so he submitted to this story of God, his purposes that of salvation through him. So this little girl, Israel girl, saw her life and even the life of her master as part of God's bigger story. And so she played her role to be faithful and just sharing what she knew. I, our God, 
and our prophet of God lives in Samaria, and, and he, our God could cure, cure leprosy. That's all she shared, because he created the whole world. In the same way, when we come to see our story as part of God's story, then Jesus is the hero of our story. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who restores the brokenness in our lives and the lives around us, whether it be sickness or broken relationships, whatever it may be, violence that's done. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it in gentleness and respect. How did we come to follow Jesus? That's a story. You know, what is your story? This is one reason why we try to have somebody, one of us in Cornerstone, share our story, or at least a part of it, um, every month, at the last Sunday of every month, because we want to develop that this is part of the rhythm of our community, that we share our stories, and Jesus being the victor and hero of the story, ultimately, because the more we practice sharing our story and God's story, then the more it just flows naturally in our, in our everyday course of life with people who believe in Jesus and follow him and people who don't and are not yet believers. We want to share the true and better story of God because it is the true and better story. Look at the book of Acts, for example. The Apostle Paul is recorded twice in the book of Acts sharing his story of how he became or he changed from being a persecutor and arresting Christians to becoming a Christian himself. It's recorded, the whole story, twice. As Westerners, we read it and we go, oh man, it's the same exact story again and it's just a few chapters separate, right? Well, actually, Luke in Acts records it three times because in chapter 9, he actually records the, the conversion, the, the historical account of what happened to Paul and then, two times later, in chapter 22 and chapter 26, there's a recording of the whole story again, exactly like in chapter 9, of Paul telling, recounting this story of how he came to be a follower of Jesus. You see how important it is to be able to tell our own personal story of how Jesus rescued us and is continuing to rescue us every day. And as we get to know the people around us and we hear their stories because that's part of the rhythm, right? Listening, eating with them, asking them questions, hearing bits and pieces of their story, and as we get to know their story, then we can then share parts of God's story that are relevant to their situation and their story. We get to share how we see God's work in our own lives and how his power has been shown to us and the things through us that he has done or, or, or what we've seen he do in others. We get to share the story of God as it relates to them, and to us. So story is a very important part of disciple-making. I'll give you another example. Our church board of officers, uh, which is simply our pastors and elders and deacons, and we have, uh, let's see, we have myself and Pastor Paul and Polly, and Polly here is a board member. She's a deacon. And let's see, I think that's it, right? Norm, is Norm? Uh, Tony up there, that's right, doing the sound. He's deacon. And Norm right over here is deacon. So we got, we got a good amount of board members here. 
But five years ago, I think it was about five years ago, our board used to do these overnight retreats. And it was a, I love these because it was a way that a time when we could connect in a way rather than just always talking about church business, which is good too. I mean, it's very good. But we wanted to connect. And so we did this activity where we were to share in these small groups. We weren't all together, but we were in these small groups where we would share about people that were, uh, had significant influence on us in leading us to believe in Jesus. And so I remember this one story that I'm going to share with you of one of our board members, and he happens to be on the board now. It's Eugene Bai. And he was in my small group, and he shared about his story of when, in 1989, he immigrated from China to come to the United States with a group of people from China to do work here in California. And he shared that the day he came was just 10 days after the famous Tiananmen Square massacre where the tanks rolled in and, and crushed people and, and there was this, you know, just the, against the protesters. And he came 10 days after that. But he shared that before he came and got his visa, they put him in a room and they had him watch these movies that were basically preparing them for what they were going to experience in America. And one thing he remembers specifically is that they were told never, ever, ever gather in a church gathering because the people there are weak, they're uneducated, and basically they're ignorant of life and they're stupid and they got mental problems, whatever it is, you know? So that's what they understood. So they came over here and, and, the, and their group in this company they were working in, there was this lady from Hong Kong and she was a Christian. So she was Chinese, she could speak to him in Chinese and she would invite them to church every single week, <laughs> every, every weekend. She'd just invite them to church and they always, you know, Eugene always said no because he's not going to go to church. Why would he go to church, right? And besides the fact, we don't go to church, right? We are the church, but, you know, this is his mindset. So why, do I, why would I go to church? So then a year went by, and this lady invited them around Christmas time. She said, hey, you know, our church is putting on this Christmas show. And then she knew them well enough. So she said, it's not a church service. It's kind of like a play, like a theater. So it's, it doesn't fit. It's not church service, you know? And so Eugene and a few of the others of the group said, well, if it's not a church service, okay, we'll go. So they went, and he was so surprised. He, he remembered that. He met these people who, quote, were Christians, you know, and they were super educated. They were very wealthy and very successful in business. And it just totally blew his mind. He was like, well, wait a minute, this does not fit what we were told. And so that was the moment he pointed to that he started, started to change his thinking about Christians and church, what it was like. And then he shared that years after that, he went into to work and study uh, further in Michigan. I think he was going for his graduate education or postgraduate, I forgot. And he was in Michigan, and he got to know this professor and his wife. The wife of this professor was very well respected, and she was super kind. All the people loved her, and she had this Bible study, or she had this group. She'd encourage people to come over to their home once a week, and if they wanted to, they could learn more about the Bible. She was not pushy at all. She didn't pressure people to study the Bible with her. She didn't pressure people to come to be a Christian. No, she was super nice. And so this is what he remembered. And then there was this one time, this one instance of this graduate student who was very unhappy with this professor, her husband, that, because he gave this uh, 
harsh criticism against her research. And so she was bad-mouthing the professor and his wife. And Eugene said, but he, he saw the criticism and he knew the criticism was accurate. You know, it, wasn't, it was like she deserved this. So it wasn't like this way off the wall criticism, but she was bad-mouthing the wife and the, uh, this uh, professor so much, it was, it was a problem in their community there. And so what blew him away was the, this professor and his wife were so disturbed by this, they made an effort to go to this person's apartment personally and apologize. And Eugene said, this blew me away, you know, from his concept of professors. <laughs> For a professor to stoop down, even though he was right, to apologize, to try to reconcile with this person, he said, this is what made me more interested in what it meant to be a Christian. He said, this is, I don't understand this. I, I, I don't understand, but I'm curious, what would motivate this person to act this way? And that's what drew him in even more, to follow and being interested in finding out, what is this Christianity thing all about, to make people like this? And you see, I was moved by Eugene's story because it reveals how disciples are made in the everyday stuff of life, like just inviting people to join you and going to someplace, even if it's not a Christian thing. But we are the message as much as the message in the scriptures. And so being with them, showing them care, living humbly before them in the name of Jesus, listening to their story and sharing the true and better story of God that is relevant to their life. And when we follow Jesus, our life story is a part of God's true and better story, and all glory goes to him. So you see, the story is an important rhythm of disciple-making because through a person's story, we learn what they believe about life. So this gets back to the rhythm of listen. If we're listening to someone's story in life and we're getting more and more of their story, we start to understand what do they believe? What do they think about life? How do they view life? How do they understand life? And then we can better tell the parts of God's story that are relevant to what they believe or are misguided. And it's a story. We don't preach, you know, the points, three points, like I often do or whatever. No, we just tell God's story. You know, and people love stories. And this is what the slave girl did as she learned about her master and his leprosy. I mean, I'm sure she didn't have much contact with the master, you know, the man. He was, she was a servant of the wife. But as she learned, she just shared God's story with her master. And then she shared it with her husband. And this story in 2 Kings chapter 5 reminds us that it is the spirit of Christ in us, working through us in the everyday stuff of life, as we just be his follower. It's when we don't follow him and our lives don't match up with the words that we say we believe, then people don't take us seriously because we don't take anybody seriously if they say one thing and they do another thing because then we realize, okay, <laughs> we just can't trust them, right? But in the case of this young slave girl, the opposite was true. There was something in this girl's life that made what she said have this ring of truth, even though she was this lowly slave girl, that the most powerful or one of the most powerful people in that country would do what she had said. You know, story, a rhythm of disciple-making is so important, and we can all know God's story and regularly rehearse it with ourselves, with our people that also believe in the same way we do, and also those who are not yet believers, 
because it, the more we talk about it and share it naturally, it just becomes a part of who we are and a rhythm of life. You know, we also then can listen to other people's stories. And that, as we saw in the, the rhythm of listen, is so important for us to listen to the people around us. If we really are a follower of Jesus, then we will live the rhythms of life in the rhythms of disciple-making. Remember, it's not something additional that we have to add to our busy schedules. It's just that all of life is the opportunity for making disciples. It's how we view us as being a part of the bigger story of God, which is the true and better story. You know, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And when you think about Jesus and what he was sent to do and what he was sent to suffer in order to achieve. He says, I am sending you. He wants you and me to be the body of Christ on earth. We represent Jesus to the world. Let's pray together. Lord God, we fall far short of representing you well. I confess my own sinfulness and selfishness. And yet, Lord, as you have shown, even our own sinfulness and selfishness, you can work for your glory's sake because you are always working for the good through those who love you and are called according to your purpose, and your purposes will continue through all generations. So no matter how we mess up and sin, as long as we are ultimately following you and confessing our sin, then you are faithful and just to forgive our sin and purify us with all your unrighteousness. I mean, our, purify us from our unrighteousness with your righteousness in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, I pray for Cornerstone, for all our congregations, that we would continue to mature as your body on earth in a holistic way, so that those who know us will see you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.